0: was a bricklayer, he was uh, finishing up a job and he had an accident and he turned in his claim to the insurance company and the insurance company had some questions about the claim. This is a letter he wrote, Dear Sir, I'm writing in response to your request for additional information for my insurance claim. The block in number three of the accident form, I wrote the reason for the accident was trying to do the job alone. You said in your letter that I should explain that statement more fully. I trust the following details will be sufficient. I'm a bricklayer by trade. On the date of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a six-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered that I had about 500 pounds of bricks left over. Rather than carrying the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel by using a pulley which was attached to the side of the building on the sixth floor level. Securing the rope at the ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, and loaded the bricks on it. Then I went back down to the ground, untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. You will note in block number 22 on the claim form that my weight is 150 pounds. Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground suddenly I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say I proceeded up the side of the building at a very rapid rate of speed. In the vicinity of the third floor I met the barrel coming down. This emphasizes my, this explains my fractured skull and collarbone Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until my fingers of my right hand were jammed two knuckles deep into the pulley. By this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel now only weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer again to the information in block number 22 regarding my weight. You might imagine I began a rapid descent down the side of the building in the vicinity of the third floor. I met the barrel once again coming up. This accounts for my two fractured ankles and lacerations of my legs and lower body. The second encounter with the barrel slowed me down enough to lessen my injuries when I fell to the pile of bricks. And fortunately, only three vertebrae were cracked. I am sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the bricks in pain, unable to stand, and watching the empty barrel six stories above, I once again lost my presence of mind and let go of the rope. The empty barrel weighed more than the rope, and it came down upon me and broke both of my legs. I hope I have furnished information sufficient to explain why trying to do the job alone was the cause of the accident. You know, we've all done it. We've tried to do things by ourselves. We, we've tried to go it alone, but we were not created to be creatures that went through this life all alone. In fact, the Bible has some things to say about that. In, the, of course, the book of Genesis chapter 2, God said it is not good for man to be alone. And most of us could probably recite the passage in Ecclesiastes chapter, chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If, if either man falls down, then the other can help him up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? That one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. And so it's this idea that we were created for togetherness. We we need to uh, have someone with us. We need to have relationships as we go about living in this world, living this life. There's a phrase for that in the Bible, and it is the word koinonia. Now, we translate that word koinonia as fellowship. That's the Greek term for fellowship. Now, that fellowship, when we think about fellowship here in the Christian church, we usually think about having a meal in the fellowship hall and maybe having some fun while we're doing that. But this word means so much more than that. It means being together. It means contributing to one another. It's this idea of community and being together. It's sharing our lives with other people. And that's part of what God calls us to as a disciple. Now, we started this series called Disciple last week, and and we talked last week about what Jesus said. uh, If anyone would come after me, he would take up his cross Uh, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you didn't get to see that, you can go back and watch it on our website. But Jesus has called us to be in fellowship first with him, but with other disciples that he makes along the way. God wants us in this community. Now, what does that disciple look like? You know, we we have as our purpose statement for our church— Connecting people to Christ to make devoted disciples. So if that's our goal is to help people be devoted disciples, what, what would a disciple look like? And I'm not talking about how they dress, their outward appearance, so to speak, but I'm talking about how do they behave, how do they live. And we have these five words that we've come up with that we think that disciples will do. Worship, grow, serve, give, live. You'll see those on a lot of our literature, probably in the, the new newsletter that comes out. Somewhere in there are those words. Worship, grow, serve, give, live. And how we do that? We worship together. We, we grow spiritually. We serve humbly. We give cheerfully. We live faithfully. All those are concepts that are taught in the New Testament About the Lord's disciples and that's going to sort of be the outline for the next few weeks as we go through this series disciple so today we're going to focus on that idea of worship together now I raise the question why is it important for disciples to worship together we'll take on this first idea today and the short answer is because that's what followers of Christ do that's what he called us to do is together as his church and to worship. You know, the Bible says the church is the body of Christ. But you know as you can imagine, even going back to the first century, there were people that said, "Well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't really need to I don't really need to gather with the with the whole church. I don't need the whole church to be a follower of Christ." But the truth is, if you're not gathering with the church, then you're not really following Jesus. Because that's what he called us to do. He called us to be part of his body, the church. Now, you could think Jesus is real all you want, but if you're really not following him, do you really believe in him? In Acts chapter 20, verse 27, the apostle Paul was speaking to some of the elders of the church at Ephesus, and he talked about following the whole will of God. You know, a lot of people want to read the Bible and just pick out the verses they like. But God has called us to follow His whole will and not just parts of it. So today I'd like for you to go to Hebrews chapter 10 uh, in your Bibles. We're going to look at verses 19 through 25. Of course, the book of Hebrews was written to the early church church. Most of those people that it was written to were of Hebrew descent who had become Christians. Remember, Christianity grew out of Judaism. They were formerly practicing Jews. They had a good idea of of the Old Testament and they needed a little more information because they were starting to drift back into the old ways of Judaism. Uh, probably written to those Jews in and around Jerusalem in the Holy Land in that first century. And this passage here, uh, I think, helps us see partially how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament idea, but it brings up two ideas. These two ideas that we're looking at today, worship and togetherness. And I want us to go through and break this down and see what it says. Let's read this. If you don't have a Bible... Uh, there's a Pew Bible there. It's on page 973. And it begins like this Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart and with full assurance, having faith. Approaching, So let's break that down. Let's think about that for just a minute. Maybe you noticed as I read that there are three times in that passage where the author says, let us. It is a call to action. He's saying, let us do this particular thing that he highlights there. Now, the first one of those let us comes there in verse 22, let us draw near to God. I hope you're going to see the power that's in those words. Here's the first thing. Worship is confidently drawing near to God through Jesus. You know, in our modern era of worship, when we think about worship, what do we think about? Singing, right? We think, well, singing is worship. That's part of worship. But that's not the totality of worship. In the first century, when you said, let us go to worship, what do you think they thought about? Going to the temple to make a sacrifice. Two sort of different concepts. Both are an offering. When we sing, we are making an offering to God. But when we take a sacrifice we are making, we don't have to make sacrifices anymore. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. And even when you mention worship, when you say, I worship God, a lot of times you're using in a general sense, you're saying, I believe in God, I follow God. He is, he is my God. He is, he is my Savior. But here when we think about specifically going to worship God, you know, he's bringing up here, he talks about the most holy place, which that takes us back to the temple. And the purpose of that most holy place is it is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Uh, We could do a whole study on that, but to make a long story short, it was behind a curtain. It was in this room that was at the back and the center of the holy place inside the temple. Now, the holy place, only priests could go. And the most holy place, only the high priest could go. And then he could only go in there one time per year on the day, uh, one of their holy days, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, they would sacrifice a lamb and he would take some of the blood from that lamb and he would go to the Ark of the Covenant and on top of it was the, the lid, it was called the mercy seat. And the Jews believed that was the dwelling place of God. And he would sprinkle some of that blood on that mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of people maybe sins that they forgotten they missed and they didn't make a sacrifice for and it was sort of a symbolic cleansing of all believers uh, of of all the Jews once a year it was a great holy day I think we have a picture maybe of that curtain and in behind that curtain you see it's opened a little bit you'll see the holy of or the Ark of the Covenant now, that curtain would never be open in that temple because the only person that could look in there was the high priest. But I want you to get what he's saying here. I also want you to be reminded that God does not just dwell on that mercy seat. In fact, that doesn't exist anymore. We don't know where that Ark of the Covenant is at today. And the Bible also tells us that when Jesus was crucified, that curtain was ripped into that shows us that the door was open for us to go to directly to God no longer do we have to have a priest except for Jesus to represent us before God and this text tells us that Jesus is our great priest now and we have access to God through Jesus Christ we have confidence to draw near To God through Jesus. If you really think about it for a minute, Jesus is the priest. He was also the sacrificial lamb. This text says he was also the, his body was the curtain that we go through. And then his blood provided the blood that was sprinkled to bring cleansing to our bodies. If you look there in one place, It says, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. You see the symbolism in that? We're sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, free from guilt. We're washed with pure water. That's pointing us back to our baptism when we committed to Christ. And we are forgiven of our sin. When we draw near to God in worship, we should recognize who we're coming before. Now let's go to this second phrase that begins with the word let us. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Our hope of salvation is strengthened in worship. You know, what, what is it that we really hope in when we say we hope in Christ? Now one thing about that word, the, the biblical hope is not a negative word. Sometimes we think about hope as being sort of a negative word. You know, somebody says, well, I sure hope I have a good day today. Well, you know, you you listen to that and you say, you don't sound very enthusiastic that it's going to be. Or somebody says, I hope I don't get the COVID. And and that, that sounds sort of negative. Somebody says, I hope I win the lottery. We know that's not going to happen. But this biblical hope is a positive word. It looks forward forward with great expectation to what God has in store for us now and and into eternity. In the book of Hebrews, back in chapter 4, verse 16, it says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We all need mercy and we all need grace because we've all sinned. And we need forgiveness. And that biblical hope looks forward with great expectation to the mercy and the grace that we have in Christ. The Bible tells us that we are justified of our sin, we are sanctified to overcome sin, and we will one day be glorified because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We are forgiven, and we are set free from Satan's Hold on us in the grip of death. And you know, when we come to worship, we ought to, we ought to recognize and think about what Jesus Christ has done for us in that sense. You know, I love these songs that we sang today. They were not chosen by accident. Chris knew the theme and he, he chose... Think about that first song we sang. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate, fall. You know, when we're worshiping here, there are angels in heaven that are just bowing down before God. Crown Him Lord of all. Not just Lord of some things, Lord of all. And it goes on to say, Hail Him who saves you by His grace. Without the grace of God, we have no hope of ever... Entering into heaven. Crown Him Lord of all. A second song. O oh, worship the King all glorious above. Oh, gratefully sing of His wonderful love. Despite the fact that we are rebellious, we've sinned against God, He still loves us. He's doing everything in His power to, to draw us back to Him. Our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilion in splendor, and girded with praise, Oh, tell of his might, oh, sing of his grace. You know, without that grace, we're doomed. We should worship, we should sing to the top of our lungs when we think about what God has done for us. All hope is found in those songs, but more importantly, it's found in Jesus. And when we worship him, that hope should be strengthened through our worship. Then look at verse 24, and let us consider how we may spur one another on. You see, worshiping together provides opportunity to spur others on. We've looked at what it means to worship, but let's think about also this idea of worshiping together. That's a key word here. You know, I, I hear people say this all the time. Well, preacher, I'd love to come to your church, you know, but Sunday's the only day I got off. And, and I, you know, I can worship God on the lake or I can worship God while I'm hiking in the mountains or I can sit in my pajamas at home and get my coffee and, and I, can, I can think about God and worship Him while I'm sitting here. Yes, you can. And I hope you sometimes do those things. But, you know, that's not all Jesus called you to do. Jesus calls us to be part of his body, to be part of his church. Look at what it says here. Spur one another to love. Now let's just think about that. The love he's talking about is a verb. It's an action word. It's not a feeling you get, it's something you do. That you actually show love to people. Hard to do that when you're on the lake or in the mountain. It goes on to say, spur them on to good deeds, servanthood, who you going to serve. And it talks about one another, that's talking about the people of the church. So he wants us to to spur others on to love, to spur others on to good deeds, to encourage one another, it talks about. You can't do that from afar. Now, I know that there are some people that are shut in, and i I tell you what, most of the shut-ins that I know that are part of our church, they'd give all they had to be able to be here on Sunday morning to worship together because they know how valuable it is. I talked with Larry Lilly, came by the church, and Betty, and their health is just declining, and, and it is so hard for Larry to even walk, but yet he came into the church to drop off his check and get communion cups, um, and they were just almost in tears because they miss being here for the fellowship so much on Sunday morning. There are times when people are going to be sick and they can't come, maybe out of town. Maybe they have to work on Sunday sometimes. That's why we broadcast, and that's great. But Christ wants us to be in the, the, the fellowship together when we can you know there's another reason why we need the fellowship why we need to be together Matt come up here for a minute just stand here in your normal stance and look now when you, when you get up in the morning I know you just jump right out of bed and you're ready to go serve God and, and do everything and, and, and be ready to go no sin in your life because you are a youth minister right all right, But does Satan never tap you on the shoulder and start pulling you a little bit? Does Satan never pull you and say, Matt, you don't need to do all that holy stuff. You need to come with me. You need to sin a little bit. You need to let your hair down and have a little fun. And so he's pulling you, and he's trying to drag you away. You reckon anybody would ever help pull you back the other way? Hoping so. You know? And I think that's part of what the church is here for. Okay. By the way, I'm not Satan. I was only playing a part. You get the point. And you know, I want to be honest with you about something. Sometimes the conversation out on the front porch with a good brother in Christ... A sister in Christ is more important than what's said on this stage. The fellowship. Sometimes you just need somebody to hug you and shake your hand and, 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 and just let you know that they care about you. And that can be way impo- more important than anything I say or do here on Sunday morning. And I want you to notice what this passage says there, the last line. And all the more... As you see the day approaching. You know what day he's talking about? The end times. The day Jesus returns. He's not saying we should, you know, we've heard it all. Why go to church? Because Christ calls you. And all the more should we be together as we see the day approaching. Hardly a day goes by when somebody doesn't say, Preacher, you think the end times are near? Yes, I do. They're a lot closer than they were yesterday. Look at the signs. Jesus is one day going to return. That's real. And here's our connection. God calls us to worship together, not for His benefit, though He gets something out of it, but for our, but for ours. You know, we gather on Sunday going all the way back to what the apostles did. That's That was the pattern that they set. They met on the first day of the week. And listen in the book of Acts to to what happened in that early church. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, worshiping, and enjoying all the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You know, if you, if you read through this passage carefully, you know what you're going to see they were doing? They were worshiping, they were growing, they were serving, they were giving, and they were living faithfully to their God. They were being disciples of Jesus Christ. I like what John Wesley once said. I want the whole church, the whole Christ for my Savior. I want the whole Bible for my book. I want the whole church for my fellowship. I want the whole world for my mission field. You know, if we want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, then let's begin with worship together. And we'll look at those other ideas in the weeks to come. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word, Lord. You didn't call us into this blindly. You have have given us your word to lead us and, and guide us and to, so to speak, be an instruction manual for becoming your disciples. And Lord, it's a lifelong journey that we go through. And I pray for this church, Lord, that we will draw many people to Christ and and help make many devoted disciples. Not for our glory, Lord, for your glory. And so that this world can be changed and many people can come to know your saving grace. And so one day we'll be in heaven surrounded by such a great cloud of faithful witnesses together. We lift this all up to you. In the strong, mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.